The following program is a paid presentation. The views and or opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of Starnes Media Group or KWAM. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Michael Powell, and Jacob Norman are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Helping you make the most of your money. It's time for Talk Money. Here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Good morning and welcome to the program. Whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it doesn't seem to matter. A common concern in almost everybody's family is always money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Welcome to Talk Money. Well, as always, we try to answer your questions as you send them to us. And again, talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com is the address to just email them to us, talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We've got a program lined up for you today. I think it's packed with a lot of information. I hope it's entertaining, and I hope it keeps your attention. Number one, we're going to talk about the International Monetary Fund. Scott Jordan's going to guide us through something called an SDR. Now, you don't want to miss that because it's important. Does it affect your retirement plan? That's a question that we've got. Then we're going to talk about long-term care and should it be a part of your long-term financial strategy. A lot of people want to know, should I buy it? How do I buy it? When do I buy long-term care insurance? That's an important question. We're going to do our best. We've got a guy that knows a lot about it, Jacob Norman. He's going to walk us through that process to help us understand, do I need long-term care? Michael Powell's in the last part of the program with us. He's going to describe why investing is simple. And uh, you're going to find out there's some very basic principles that everybody listening needs to apply to their investment program. Michael Powell, Certified Financial Planner, is going to help us dive into that. But first and foremost, let me introduce the guy that's with me most of the time on this program, does an excellent job. Scott Jordan, welcome to the program, sir. Great to be here, Jim. Scott, the question is about this International Monetary Fund and something called SDRs. And I appreciate the fact that it's just been out here on the national news. And it's got a lot of people concerned whether it's a good thing for their retirement plan, a bad thing for their retirement plan, a good thing for America, or a bad thing. But here's the kind of the thought process around the question, around the idea behind the International Monetary Fund. It says, how would America's major participation, major, now I, I kind of circled that because yeah. I thought major, maybe not quite, but major participation in the IMF's SDR program affect the value of my savings account? Great question. Great question. But again, it's one of those questions that you can sense came as a result of hearing something on the media that created anxiety, stress, and all those things. And I think it's important that we walk through. I don't think we should try to get into the weeds. We could spend another program doing that. But to answer this question, why or how should America's major participation in the IMF SDR program affect the value of my savings, retirement, or whatever? What is, Scott, the IMF? So, Jim, the IMF was established coming out of, you know, we're getting out of World War II around 1944. It's a a collaboration of 190 members, and it was established with the goal of kind of providing financial stability globally, um, looking at things like facilitating international trade, uh, promoting high employment, 
sustainable economic growth globally and uh, really with the idea of reducing poverty around the world. So it was a global approach. It was. And it the was. idea was here, It's. It, I don't want to say it's like the Fed, but it's kind of a global Fed mindset, setting policies, <laughs> yeah. bringing everybody to the table, 190 people, you know, to the table. It functions kind of similar, like you said, to a global central bank. That may be an oversimplification, but kind of you can kind of think of it that way. It's it's financed by the member countries, so the member countries pay in their capital subscriptions or quotas based on it's kind of relatively based on their uh, relative position in the world economy. So, so naturally. The question major is because the United States is a major part of the global economy, so they are a major contributor to the IMF. And again, that's um, the, the big person at the table contributes more, and that's understandable. Now, when you talk about 190 members, I don't want you to go, well, if you got time. Can, can, can you, you name list? all those? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you walk me through all, just the top 50, how about right, that? Right, yeah, no, that'd, it, that'd be challenging there, too. What you're talking about, some of these are... Maybe not your world economies. These are maybe, you know, I guess, um, uh, let's say they're still struggling. In emerging countries. Emerging, yeah, emerging go, countries. Word, emerging yeah, a lot, of, a lot not, of the They're emerging. not at the world table like they you think. These right. are people that are emerging, wanting to grow people out of poverty. Right. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So we've got the idea of what the IMF is, and I think that helps. But now... The idea behind special drawing, I guarantee you, if I walk down the streets of our beautiful city and I ask 100 people, I'm surprised if I would maybe get one or two that would know what an SDR. But yet it was on the news, it was mentioned, it was discussed, and so therefore it creates an alarm. So tell us what an ID, an SDR is and why it's important for us to know about it. Well, like you said, on August 23rd, the largest allocation of SDRs or special drawing rights in history came into effect. So that's why you started seeing that hit the headlines. SDR has been around for a long time. It's it's kind of a difficult concept for a lot of people to grasp because it's not a currency, but it is a global reserve asset that was created back in 1969. The value of an SDR, or a special drawing right, is determined by a basket of currencies. There's five currencies that make that up. You have the dollar. The dollar and the euro are the largest portion that make up that value, and then also the Chinese yuan, the yen, and the British pound. All those are determined, they, they determine the value of what an SDR is. They're valued daily. And basically, it's a way to, when they make an allocation of SDRs, it's a way to put liquidity into the global financial system because member countries then can convert those SDRs, that reserve assets, into hard currencies of the member participants. For example, they could go to the U.S. Treasury and convert those SDRs into dollars if needed. And that's and where that, some of the concern And that's very in. helpful, but yep. at the same time for the country, but is it going to be helpful for the U.S.? I guess the question after you talk about this, you really begin to say, does the SDR allocation impose a burden on the U.S.? I think that's the question. It's really getting and, and a burden. A, it calls people to yeah. have a little bit of angst about this yeah. thing. Is this going to, we already got a problem because of the debt. Is this additional problem? It, not necessarily. So the 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 allocation of SDRs in itself imposes no real cost on the United States. Now, where the cost would come into play is what we just talked about, where a member country 
that has special drawing rights comes to the United States and wants to convert those into dollars. Well, those dollars has to come have to come from somewhere. So they would come from our Treasury's cash reserves, which many people think they would in turn have to borrow, increasing our borrowing costs. But the flip side of that is when they have an SDR outstanding out like that, they do earn interest on that SDR. Uh, though it poses no debt on the country that converts it, they do pay interest costs on that through the IMF. And so the interest cost earned on that could offset any cost of borrowing from the U.S. Treasury. So Doesn't this create, as it goes back to, let's go back to the IMF. The idea was to bring 190 countries together in this global economic system to help people compete. And right. obviously competing with the largest economy Right. U.S. is difficult. And in fact, when we come back, I want to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to tell everybody what the number one export has been. Three out of four containers. In fact, this is not my number. This is from Lodestar. I mean, it's it's really quoting Mr. Soraka, which is the head of the uh, Los Angeles, uh, uh, head of the Los Angeles the board, the, the whole idea behind their what they're what they're exporting. So I want to talk about him because really what you're saying, the IMF is supposed to bring this together, presenting an SDR, which you talked about that. It's only 113 million, isn't that what you said? 650 billion. 650 billion. Yeah, oh, a little off. A little, there. little off. Just a couple little zeros off. Okay. there. Just a couple of zeros. Yeah. Hey, what can I say? All right. When we come back, I want you to find. I want to talk about what we're exporting. <laughs> That's a big. <laughs> but then, do the, does this present a problem? And does the SDR allocation put the dollar's reserve currency status? I mean, does it put it at risk? That's the whole idea. Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Well, I'm talking with Scott Jordan. We are talking about a subject that it's something that was recently occurred and it just actually... Um, Hit the news media on August the 23rd, and some questions have come in, and, and so we're walking through it. We're not trying to dig into the weeds, but, you know, first of all, we define what the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, does, and then what is an SDR? And, Scott, what I, I really kind of want us to help everybody understand, because I think the real concern that a lot of people are having, when you listen to it on the news media, sometimes you can paint a picture that it makes it, It'll shake your knees and rattle your dentures, you know, if that's the problem. And so here's the question. Does the SDR allocation that we've talked about put the dollars, the you know, the U.S. dollars reserve, the currency, the whole idea, at risk? I mean, that's what everybody's concerned about. And I think that's a legitimate concern. And if you go back to the history of the SDR, part of part of why it came about was the concern over the dollar being the, the main global currency. But... If you just look at the numbers, so the dollar currency may, dollar currently makes up 57% of global reserves. Uh, SDRs currently only make up 2% of global reserves, so not even close there. But even after this allocation, uh, the U.S. dollar is still going to comprise more than 54% of global reserves. Now, that will bring the SDRs up to 7%, but the dollar is still three times 
the size of the next most significant currency. So uh, I don't think that this by itself is anything that puts the dollar reserve dollar as a reserve currency at risk at this time. It's pretty small compared to some of the other measures that have been taken. I mean, when you look at how much the U.S. government has thrown at this crisis, you know, trillions of dollars, trying to do trillions more, and we're only talking about $650 billion here across a global landscape. So not a, not a big not a big package compared to some of the other central banks. For our listeners, though, the risk and the, you know, this whole global financial system, uh, to describe, I guess, what do you see as the risk, but also what is the benefit? Well, I think, uh, you know, some of the critique of it has been that a lot of this money is going to end up in some of these predatory lending nations. Uh, China has been mentioned a lot. You know, this is going to go to pay off some of their Belt and Road Initiative debt and in some other countries. Um and and that is a risk, and that that is probably a side effect of this. But I think the 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 strengthening of the global economy, especially in some of these emerging markets, like I said, that really need to recover from this. When you when you look at global supply chains, you know we were talking earlier about you know Volkswagen getting a lot of their supply from Malaysia, and they're getting hitting hit hard by the virus, and just don't have the resources to get the vaccines out to citizens and things. So they're having to shut factories down. When you look at the risk to the global supply chain, the need for a more, I guess, equitable growth pattern and in, in globally, I think that the, the risks are there, but they're not outweighed by, I mean, they are outweighed by the potential rewards of, of doing the I know a lot of the thought process is, and I mean, when you look at this global system, and again, I think it is a system, it is a global thing, and you have to say, what's our share, what's our, how do we play at the global table, right. and we have to say that, you know, the we have, and so let's share with the have-nots, and that's really right. what we're doing. Well, I think it gives the opportunity for some of these indebted, you know, emerging market countries to, to kind of shore up their balance sheets and, and, and maybe borrow money at more favorable rates and things like that, so... I think there are a lot of positives there. Anytime you're putting money in the system, that's a risk. But I think there are a lot of positives that could come out of this. Well, I told you earlier that I was mentioning that last month, three out of four cargo containers leaving the port of Los Angeles, three out of four. Now, this is data from Lone Star, and they're quoting, they're quoting Mr. Gene Soraka, who is the Los Angeles Port Authority head or chairman. And so he says three out of four were empty. And that's that's a sign right there that our exports, well, it's expensive, it is bottom expensive. line, to buy something from the U.S. today. Well, our trade deficits are currently at record label, le- right. levels, and I think that's that's part of what this global recovery and putting this money out into the system can help solve some of that by giving countries money to buy our goods and services as well. Well, Gene Soraka said, and I quote, our largest export commodity continues to be air. Air. End wow. of quote. Wow. <laughs> so we've got to do something. Yeah. Bottom line, the pandemic has been a worldwide crisis. The International Monetary Fund is there to help SDRs as part of the program, as you said. Been around since 1969. Not new, but it's something we've got to be. And I'm glad everybody's asking questions yeah. about it. And so let me go to my second question and my second guest. Jacob Norman is here with us. And, you know, Jacob, the question comes about that people ask about long-term care. And that has been a huge, huge problem because as we see people looking at Social Security and the benefits of Social Security, and just recently I was reading from the Social Security trustees that said by 2033 that the trust account that supports the you know Social Security is going to be bankrupt. That's not good. That is not good, sir. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
You know, Jacob, I think one of the things that people talk about when they mention Social Security or they mention long-term care is, you know, they they think through this process. Everybody hears about, well, I've got it or I don't have it or I've got to get my daughter is going to take care of me. I, I have to say this, that my two daughters was telling their mom that no question that they wouldn't, you know, she would, the kids would never let her go to a nursing home. Well, I asked, what about me? And, uh, hmm. you know, that was not even, they said, dad, nursing home, straight to it, straight to the nursing home. Bottom line is people think sometimes families are going to take, family members are going to take care of them. And that may have been the case uh, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's not the case today. Long-term care is really becoming a very important part of anybody's long-term strategy. Help us understand there's a lot of misconceptions about long-term care. Sure. What is long-term care insurance? So to me, long-term care is typically coverage of everything you don't think about. Uh, so obviously your health insurance is going to cover your medical visits, any hospitalizations, medications, those kind of things. But we don't take into consideration getting to and from the doctor's visits or having daily check-ins to make sure everything's okay or, or proofing the home to where it's a safe establishment for you to live in or the nursing home care being the most obvious one and the expenses go along with uh, my experience and being around people who have to deal with that the children or whoever the, the caretaker is feel some guilty or not sense of burden uh, and this is money that goes to alle- a either alleviate that individual uh, or b give some options some choice so going back to you in your case um, we hope that it's a choice that you can go to a nursing home. <laughs> it won't be. Right? <laughs> My two daughters, dad, nursing home. You're going straight. No <laughs> questions asked. And I understand that. Uh, they were just kidding, obviously. When you talk about long-term care, that, that cost, and Jacob, is that it pays for custodial care or any time when you can't perform two of the six activities of daily living. Let's walk through those six. I think a lot of people don't know what they are. Absolutely. If you can't clean yourself, give yourself a bath. Uh, If you can't safely get yourself onto a toilet to relieve yourself. Uh, Just like I said, getting to and from doctor's appointments or PT, physical therapy, uh, eating. If you can't make your meals or eat your meals, obviously that's a necessity. Uh, getting yourself dressed to go about your day-to-day or continence and just the ability to control your movements. So two of those six, this is where a long-term care insurance would, would pay for something. Like and that. I think it's really a big takeaway that you aren't necessarily uh, fully disabled or invalid if you represent two of these deals. You could be a very lively person but still represent two of these ADLs. What do you see as the annual cost? I mean, long-term care is expensive. I want to ask you that question. Then when I come back, I want to say how, who really needs it. But, sure. but what's the cost? So th- there's always an opportunity cost in every decision we make, which is the most common one we're seeing is opportunity cost. Um, but what I'm also seeing as far as what overall cost to the individual is going to be around $50,000 if you just have somebody to come into your home and help. That way you alleviate your children to go work, take care of their children, go about life. Uh, the homemaker services is 48000 Adult daycare, uh, somewhere around $19,000 a year. Uh, the larger expenses, if we want that really nice nursing home, uh, we're going to be looking at upwards of $90,000 a year. If you want some privacy in that room, you're not sharing with a bunkmate, uh, you're looking at over one hundred k. And that's actually coming from a survey that you actually are quoting. Right? I, that is a Jim Worth survey of 2018. And, and actually, Jim, I looked it up as, as often as last night or as recent as last night, and the numbers are still very relevant. You know, the key is, I think, and you guys all know this, and uh, Scott, you know, we talk to people all the time that that literally the planning process is they've waited too long. 
and they've thought through that process. And it's kind of like when do they when do when do you make that decision? Yeah, I think you have to start earlier than most people want to think about it. It's not something that a lot of people like to think about. And you know, by starting early, when you when you have your health and can actually qualify for say an insurance policy, if that's the route you choose to go, then you have options. Once you've gotten past a certain point where you know basically you're not going to be insurable then you're looking at just trying to figure out how you're going to pay the cost because you can't transfer it to an insurance company at that point all right guys i want us to dive into do i really need it jacob when we come back there's so many questions that when you talk about long-term care and how to put it together the financial strategy stay with us because man we're going to dive into it jacob number is going to continue the discussion i'm jim shoemaker this is talk money The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large-cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money on KWAM, the Mighty 990. Welcome to the program. My guest right now in the program and in the studios is Jacob Norman. We are talking about long-term care, why it should be a part of of your long-term financial strategies. If you got if you got a question for Shoemaker Financial or for me, Jim Shoemaker, send it to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. If you got a question for any one of these guys, you can reach them at 757-5757. Again, if you've got a question that you would like to be to hear it aired on the program, simply send it to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. All right, let me kind of sidestep this a little bit. I, I really want to ask you, Jacob, because I think long-term care, a lot of people perceive it's expensive. And I know that that expensive is the cost mindset. The other side of that is what's the cost if you need to do something. I know you're going to tell us a little bit about pricing and how to put that together. But but answer the question for people, I think, I think that, that – comes into the conversation a lot. Do I really need it? And I think that's a question that, that is a very fair question to any financial planner from a client that's saying, you know, do I really need long-term care? If you're looking at it from a raw number standpoint, it's a no-brainer. Uh, if you're looking at it from a standpoint of two 65-year-olds, so I'm going to use you and your wife for an example Careful. again. Careful. I, I will Careful. be sensitive. All right. I'm, I'm going to let it go this time. But the stats show that one of you are going to need it. Do I look 65? Come on. You Never look, mind. Never mind. I, don't, I, I won't answer okay, that question that's today. Good. Not on the radio, at least. <laughs> that's why I do radio. 50%, 50 of all 65-year-olds are going to use it. That means if you're still in a in a marriage at 65, one of two of you are most likely going to go into one type so of So at some point now. in time, what you're saying is that my wife and I, both of us uh, reasonably decent health, but uh, she's uh, her mom's 90. So, you know, now her mom's not in a nursing home and is as solid as a rock. Physically, maybe not so, but... Uh, you know, mentally doing great. So you were saying one of us, and I can tell you it will not be me, it will be her, probably will end up in, you know, of course my daughters have said, no, Mom, you're going to take care of you. The reality is she's going to live long enough. She may need some of the help that we're talking about. Yes, sir. 
All right, so that's important for us to understand that. So when you talk about 65, how long is somebody today statistically going to stay in a nursing home? So average is going to be, uh, the small end is greater than five years, but two years is going to be the average stay for two somebody. Two years, okay. Correct. But you see, it, you see it average going up. Scott, do we see people? I mean, we've got clients that are working at that stage. And, you're, I mean, nursing home, they, they do everything they can to stay out of the nursing home. Right. But at some point in time, that's going to occur. That's absolutely right. And I always say averages are guaranteed to disappoint half the people out there. So, I mean, we that's know good. people who have been in situations a lot longer than two years. So you right. just don't know. I mean, it's, it's good to look at those numbers to kind of get an idea. But for you as an individual, it's going to be what it's going to be. You're either going to need it or you're going to not need it. And... You know, if you do, how are you going to pay for it? I think that's the question that you have to answer. I think the key is exactly right. And and actually, you know, when you talked about the cost, you know, home health aid, just someone coming into the home, and these are recent survey numbers, 2018 Genworth, I mean, $50,000 a year. Uh, that could be a substantial amount of money. And, you know, what we see a lot of times is it's both spouses are still alive and Maybe the wife can't care for the husband or the husband really cannot care for that wife. And that's a problem and that's an issue. So having that ability to do that. All right. Now, when you when you look at it, let's talk briefly about what are the tax advantages of buying long term care. Absolutely. So once you have paid for long term care insurance, any benefit that's to be distributed is tax free. That's not going to be a taxable resource of income versus uh, if you are drawing down on your assets that you've accumulated over a lifetime to pay for these long-term care expenses, every dollar of that's going to be coming out as taxable income. And so if we've set aside some dollars on the front end that are going to pay for this type of event later in life, uh, we're just making a tax play long-term to use tax-free specified dollars to, to accomplish a goal rather than our taxable income dollars. So keep that in mind is mm-hmm. just do the tax planning around that. That's important to figure that out, getting the insurance payment coming in tax-free versus pulling out of your IRA or something like that. And Jim, something I think that's worth noting, we touched on very quickly as far as home health, I do want to specify that $50,000 isn't your total income in that year or your total expenses in that year either because... Uh, that's not accounting for just your food and your normal living expenses on top of the home health care. So I don't want the takeaway to be that our expenses are going to be $50,000 a year once we go into a long-term care event. That's an additional expense on whatever we've been living on at that point at anyway. At that point in time. So Correct. just uh, extra dollars. So shoot it through the roof as far as living expenses go. So the reality is, do you need to think through this and understand it as a part of your long-term strategy? It's just tackling the money that you've saved up. And the fact that somebody's possibly going to live to be 90, taking care of the person who needs to have that extra care. I think if we want to maintain our dignity in retirement, which is what everybody strives to do, is maintain some sense of, of self-worth that they've made the right decisions, I think you have to. Well, you got a few minutes left, and I want to talk about this. What are the types? There's so many types talked about, and you hear that from all different sources, and I think it's confusing. So in this question mindset is about long-term care, what are some of the types of long-term care insurance that you can buy? Sure. So uh, there's going to be a major takeaway in this. I want people. There's two words I want people to remember, um, but I'm going to get to that here in a second. So let's start out. There's the traditional style of long-term care insurance. This is the one people are accustomed to. We pay a premium. If we use it, then fantastic. We've paid a great premium. Uh, we've gotten something back out of it. If we don't use it, if we just pass away instantly, heart attack, we've wasted a lot of premium dollars. Uh, they're also creating these... Uh, 
riders on life insurance contracts, both on the permanent and term side. It's a chronic illness rider where you can use a portion of the death benefit, a percentage of the death benefit for long-term care instances. Uh, and then they have these relatively new universal life permanent insurance hybrid products where you do a lump sum deposit uh, either in one year or 10 to 15 years and then that's going to create a pool of money that you can use. Now that goes back to those two main words that I want you all to remember, the reimbursement versus indemnity. Uh, a reimbursement contract, and I want everybody to remember this, you're going to have to prove with bills, invoices, and receipts that you have paid for some type of long-term care event uh, before you're going to see any of your benefit dollars come back into your checking account versus a, an indemnity contract. Whereas once you go on claim and the benefit starts paying it, that, that money is yours to spend, and there's no proof that has to be provided to receive those dollars. So the reality is long-term care is a is a definitely a part when you think through it. Knowing the different types of policies are critical. Knowing the cost of the policies are critical. But at the same time, knowing what you're buying to protect. I mean, w- whether it's that home care vi- you know, provider, the, the $50,000 a year, that can be three or 4,000, three or four years. That can be up to $200,000 quickly. Very and uh, can take a lot of money right out of the estate. And again, those are things that we have to, to think about when you're buying long-term gear. Is it for everybody? Maybe not. And, and that's fine. And so if you've got, you know, what I see, and you guys kind of think about this, it's it's that middle of the road. you got a very large estate. Maybe not. And I'm not going to say you should or you shouldn't. Uh, but then you have the person who has almost no estate that's going to end up in, you know, Medicaid, which is not a bad thing, but that's the one that's got that middle of the road, that half million to a million five, and you're just draining down assets. And those are things that people have to look at. So that's the purpose of long-term care. So, Scott, I, you know, both of you have talked about this. You know, Jacob, you talked about it. The reality is you need to think about it. You need to at least put it in your mindset as being a part of your long-term strategy. I've had some fantastic conversations where it's just a ton of information provided. The lack of knowing brought people to a non-decision. And everybody who has learned a little bit more has struck up a significant amount of interest. And, and, and I do believe there's a fit for everyone out there. There's so many. There's these three different types, and then there's subsets of those types. Do the research find the one that fits your household best? Because you're going to find the one ultimately that gives you the comfort that you're looking for, and that's all you really need to find is that comfort. Well, thank you, Jacob. Thank you. Great job of explaining that to us. If you'd like to talk to Jacob, 757-5757. When we come back, Michael Powell is going to just walk us through the simplicity of investing. Believe it or not, we get this question. I guess it might be one of our number one questions a lot, and that is simply, how do I get started? What do I do? Explain it to me. And and again, we're going to walk through some very, it's kind of a, 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 a I guess, simple tutorial. <laughs> Can I say that, Michael? Yeah, that's, fair. Uh, that's fair. And so super, simple tutorial on what is investing and how it's quite simple. And Michael Powell, CFP, is going to do that for us. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Life insurance products contain fees such as mortality and expense charges, which may increase over time and may contain restrictions such as surrender periods. 
Welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money on KWAM, the Mighty 990. We've been talking. We've had a program just rocking and rolling. We've talked about the IMF and SDRs. We're going to leave it like that. That's So you go back and listen to it. IMF, I'm going to tell you what that is, and SDR. It just sounds kind of, you know, like might be intriguing and, and, uh, and, 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 and kind of interesting, I guess. But... We also had someone that talked about long-term care, and we appreciate Jacob Norman diving into that and why it's important to have long-term care as a part of your long-term financial strategy. Great, great uh, thoughts and ideas there, Jacob, and you did a wonderful job. And now Mr. Michael Powell, Certified Financial Planner, and it's kind of that investing 101 mentality. So many people ask, how do I get started? What should I think about first? Why is it this? And, and they got questions, and I think people have a tendency to get a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to investing. And so we've asked Michael to come in and get a walk us through a simple tutorial on investing and, and why it's simple. So welcome to the program, Michael. It's always good to be back, Jim. Well, you do a great job for us, my man. And uh, I just really want to propose the question. And if anybody's got questions, just send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. And we will get your questions on the air. Now, Michael, the question is, I guess, guide us through, walk us through kind of the tutorial of basic investing 101. And then I'll get some questions for you as you go. Just to understand the simple concept of what investing is, is basically putting up, giving up something now in order to get a potential higher return in the future, right? And easily put, we put that into two different subjects, and people are like, what should I invest in? How much money do I do in what? But really, think of it in two basic concepts. Lonership, I'm loaning money to someone, or owning or ownership. Lonership and ownership, that's pretty easy to understand. But lonership is something that we do every single day, and we don't even know that we do it. It's lower risk. It's something that basically, and I'm not talking about loaning the Scott. Scott, that's, may, that's a little higher. I risk. don't know if I'm going to get yeah. my money back. And by with, the way, I've never been no, no way to Jacob. No way to Jacob. <laughs> Jacob's still out in the woods too. On that. I don't know, but either way, loanership. I think of that as like putting money in my checking account, my savings account, with a bank, with someone that's a higher, got a lot more well regard to themselves, a U.S. Treasury, a government type entity. Um, I'm lending them my money. They are using it, whatever they do for it, but they are also going to pay me something in return for me to hold it on to it. And the more established that uh, entity is, the safer it is for me. So it could be a large corporation. It could be a large corporation. Or be, an insurance company or right. something like that. To anybody that you have a – it's kind of like you're trusting that they're going to give you your money back and pay you interest while you loaned it to them. Right. The most likely borrowers of your money is going to be a bank – a CD at the bank, local, state, federal governments, the things we just named. Okay, the corporations right, and insurance companies. exactly. All right, so loanership, I like that term, loanership. I am literally loaning money. I expect to get my money back plus interest, and I'm not taking a lot of risk. The risk is who I loan it to, are they creditworthy? Are they going to pay me back? The financial strength is the most important part of okay, that risk. that makes sense. Or tying your money up for a longer period of time with a potential poor rate of return. We always talk about it now, Jim. Gone are the days where you see CDs and savings accounts paying 3, 4, 5, 6%. 
So the risk with a loan mm-hmm. is if I loan money to a bank or a, to, let's say, a large corporation, and they are not credit worthy, they, they, you know, they got to pay me, uh, let's say they're they're less credit worthy than another corporation. Let's Correct. Let's put that number right. say they're not credit worthy. But uh, I guess my risk is, you know, maybe they're not going to pay me back. So I have the right, I guess what you're saying is I have the right to ask for more interest more payment, pay me back and charge you a higher interest rate. Exactly. Because I'm taking a greater risk. Right. Okay, so that's the risk of loaning money to someone who's not credit worthy. So we, we refer to that sometimes the higher the risk you're taking in loaning is being a junk bun. And and I understand that. It's not don't like that, but investment grade. I've heard it yeah. called that. That's like you used to call it used cars. Now they're pre-owned cars. But certified pre-owned certified cars. It pre-owned. makes it sound a whole yeah, lot better. Yeah, it makes it sound a whole lot better. So investment grade would be a little bit higher rate of return as far as interest payment to me, but my risk is that they possibly could default. Yeah, that's right. And so right. bottom line is be careful. Exactly, exactly. Now the second one I talked about, ownership, that's the exact opposite. Instead of me lending my money to someone, I am buying an asset. Most of us think of a uh, buying a home, buying a car. One of those things where I'm putting my money into it, I'm buying a stock, I'm buying an individual company, and I live and die by that performance or the, the value of it growing. Uh, basically, that's a lot higher risk if we think about it. Because if I am putting my money into something like a small business, a lemonade stand, whatever you want to call it, if my lemonade stand doesn't sell lemonade, then whatever I've put into that business, I may not get all of that money out of that. So business. the risk is if it's uh, you're trying to get started on something that's a startup, mm-hmm. it might not be a good startup. Right. That's a lot more risk than something that's already been around 100 years, 50 years, and 75 years, whatever. Because that's a proven track record, and I'm buying that proven track record. Exactly. We think of the stock market as buying ownership. I'm buying ownership in a company that is in the stock market. It's publicly traded. I can buy a stake in that business, whether I believe in it, it's going to be good, or I just mainly I believe that I'm going to have more out of it than what I put into it. Where is the where is the struggle with buying stocks for some people, Michael? What what do you see? I mean, whether it's uh, you know a startup company that's you know somebody's got a of course you know look at tech stocks years ago they were starting up something in their garage and now they're worth billions and billions of dollars. Bottom line is the risk was when they were started up in the in the garage were they going to make it? Today you know there's not as much risk buying that. It's just the fluctuation of the market. Yeah. What do you what do you make a decision that you want to buy a startup? A lot of times I ask a client, I'll sit down and say, okay, Jim, are you willing to lose all of this money if you were to invest in it? If I'm talking startups, Jim, just something very simple there. Then if the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't be investing in it in the first place. Because all it is is the the highest risk when I'm owning something is that I may not get all or I may lose all the money I've I've put into that, that business. So realistically... If I'm not willing to lose a little bit or see my money go down in some way, shape, or form, then doing that is probably not for you. All right. So the greater the risk, the greater the potential return. The take less risk, you're not going to get as as much of a return. But you also feel a little bit more st- stability. 
in that. We, you know, Scott, we were talking to someone recently uh, in the office that that had never invested in stocks. Now, he he mentioned the fact that he had a 401k plan, but you know, you could sense that he had a lot of these simple questions. Yeah, and you know, it's it's with all the terminology and all the lingo that's used around it, it can sound very confusing. But I think I think Michael's doing a great job here of kind of breaking it down to those simple terms and really understanding what you're getting into when you're investing. And the understanding is critical. It's critical. Is making sure you understand. If you don't understand, ask questions ask until questions. you do understand. Scott, you do that. I know you answer a lot of questions. Now, let me ask this, Michael, because I think this is reality. Do people think sometimes investing in a company or even loaning money to a company is like gambling? I've heard that. Definitely. I really, it's amazing that I hear that. What's your thoughts? I think gambling is a relative term, just depending on who you are. Because I could say I'm gambling by putting money on black at a roulette table. There is a chance that my money will disappear and the house takes it. That is not the same concept of me buying a company that's large, very reputable. I may spend their product every single day. There's a big difference between me putting $100 in that company than putting my money on black. Because really, gambling subjects your money to an exceedingly high level of risk in an attempt to profit from some sort of game or chance. All right. And that's that's really what gambling is. Okay. And that's chance. That's and, chance. And that's and investing's not chance. No, it's not because basically there is a lot of different fluctuations with what gambling can do. You and know what? I think when we get into a subject like this, I think the clock runs faster. It does. It does because yes. we're out of time already. I want to thank you, Michael, for giving us the simplicity of investing and how you've done that. Great job. Anytime. You've been listening to KWAM, the mighty 990 FM 107.9 and AM 990. I want to thank my guests, Michael Powell, Jacob Norman, and Scott Jordan. If you have questions for any one of these guys, you can reach them at 901-757-5757. Next week, my guest, Greg Valerie. You do not want to miss this guy. He is the chief U.S. policy statement strategist for AGF Investments. Going to do a great job of bringing us up to date on some things happening in the United States right now. Also, Richard Redmont will be here, career transitioning during the pandemic. That's Wednesday and Saturday mornings right here on KWAM, the mighty 990 at 9 o'clock. If you have questions, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and I just thank you guys for being a part of the program. It's always great to have you here. We're here every week helping you make the most of your money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, Scott Jordan, Michael Powell, and Jacob Norman are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. 